know anything about dog racing? Anybody? Jess does. We'll talk about that later, Jess. Um, the only reason, now I actually know something about it. We have dog racing in, in the state that we're from in the states. Um, the only reason I know very much about it is I had a good friend in college who trained these dogs and cared for these dogs. And you know how they get them to run around the track, right? How's that, Jess? They follow like a rabbit. That's right. They're chasing a mechanical rabbit. His name is Rusty. And so the announcer will say, here comes a Rusty. Bam! And the, and the gates open and the dogs are after Rusty the rabbit. Although he's a fake rabbit, right? He's a fake rabbit. Uh, he's a lie, actually. He's a, a trick. He's a delusion. Um, the dogs are chasing something they think if they can catch it, it will give them some satisfaction. But they don't know that what they're chasing is a trick. The dogs never figure this out unless one dog actually catches Rusty, uh, which almost never happens. But if Rusty breaks down and the dogs catch Rusty, well, these dogs are ruined. They will never run again. They, they just, yeah, the trick is up. They figured it out. I'm not chasing this fake rabbit anymore. This is stupid to run around in a circle for no good reason, right? Uh, you, you guys know where I'm going with this? <laughs> Some of you are chasing lies, too. You think they're going to make you happy. You think they're going to give you satisfaction. These lies have you running in circles for no good reasons. The dogs are actually smart enough, though. Once they catch Rusty, they never chase him again. Once they realize he provides no true lasting satisfaction, they never chase him again. So I'm just going to challenge you. Some of you are chasing things above Christ. Some of you have even tasted some of it, and you realize there's no ultimate lasting true satisfaction there, but you're still chasing it. I just challenge you with that simple analogy. Have you ever noticed, if you know much of your Bible and if you've read much of the Gospel of John, um, and we've only looked at several uh, passages in the Gospel of John, Jesus ruins everybody He runs into. And what I mean by this, He gets them off the lie, right? He, it's like the greyhound is ruined. He'll never chase that story fake rabbit again. And so, everybody Jesus encounters, He gets them off the lie. Or at least He challenges them, challenges them to come off the lie, right? Nicodemus and his religion, this woman and her man fetish we talked about last week, and there are countless examples throughout Scripture. Jesus is out to ruin your life as it exists that He might give you a far greater and better, more satisfying life. Do you understand the, the metaphor here? He's going, to get you off the, he's going to get you off chasing the lie. He's going to get you off of running in a circle for no good 
reasons. It's what Jesus does. He's like, he's like a divine earthquake. Everybody Jesus encounters in the Gospel of John, He rocks their world. He blows it up. Right? It's what He did to Nicodemus. It's what He's doing to this woman at the well. Jesus doesn't just impart interesting insights and another opinion about life or another philosophical view. He is a 10.0 on the Richter scale. I went to seminary with a, a young man from California and he had experienced many earthquakes and a couple of very significant earthquakes. And he said, you know, once the ground shakes under you in a significant way, how many of you have experienced earth, an earthquake? Once he says you experience a major earthquake, he says you're never quite the same. He says once the ground shakes under you, the thing you think is, is immovable and, and solid and fixed, once it shakes under you in a significant way, he says you're never really ever the same. It caused him to uh, revisit his agnosticism and oh, he ended up in seminary with me. What, a awful, what an awful outcome. I mean, he had to sit, through, he had to sit with me in theology class, but we had some good times together. He says, once you feel that which you think is solid, tremble, he says it makes the thinking man think again. And this is what Jesus does to every person He encounters. He rocks their world. And if He's never rocked your world, what I want to lovingly say to you is, you have not met Him yet. Because He will rock your world. He will blow it up. He'll get you off the lie. And He'll get you onto Him. He'll get you onto what truly satisfies. Which is God and God alone. Charles Spurgeon, that famous... 19th century English preacher. He says, The Christian is spoiled for this world. I've always loved that quote. I've never forgotten it. I probably read this quote 30 years ago. So let me ask you, are you spoiled for this world? Are you ruined for this world? Are you off, rusty, the mechanical rabbit? Or are you still chasing things that will never satisfy you? One, you can never catch. And two, will never satisfy you. God is out to ruin you for this world that you might look to the next. He's going to get you off all of these worldly lies that some of you are still pursuing and desiring. The last few weeks we've seen Jesus serve up this worldview adjustment. Um, in John chapter 2, He told he told the Jews, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It rocked their world. He, they said, it took 46 years to build this temple. <laughs> of course, Jesus is talking to them in spiritual terms. He says, I'm the temple. I transcend the temple. Right? I'm Messiah. Kill me and I will be raised up in three days. This is obviously what the Lord Jesus is talking about. He rocks their world. It's what he said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes out in all of his self-righteousness and his, his self-assurance in his religion. And Jesus rocks his world. Jesus says, you've got to be born again, man. You're nowhere. You're a perfect Jew, 
That's great! You're nowhere with God! You must be born again! He rocks Nicodemus' world. And we saw it last week, the Samaritan woman. <laughs> she just came out for some water. <laughs> Jesus starts talking about living water. And then Jesus says, go call your husband. And as we talked about, where does this come from? Well, it comes from Jesus looking into the heart of Nicodemus who loved his religion and this woman who loved her immorality. Jesus always exposes the sin. He's trying to get you off rusty. You understand? He lovingly exposes the sin in your life. That you'll come off rusty, the lie, the deception, the trick, and you'll pursue Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Most of mankind is like those greyhounds. They're just chasing a lie. And some of you are, I suspect. You're giving more energy to some lie in the world than you are to your Creator and your Redeemer. Do I have to say how wrong that is? Do I have to say how foolish that is? Do I have to say how costly that is? So I lovingly challenge you, if you're chasing some lie in the world, to come off of it. Jesus loves everyone He encounters. And He rocks their world. He intends to ruin them for this world. Everything other than Jesus Christ, and I mean everything, everything you know, everything you see, everything you have, everything you hope, everything you enjoy, everything you plan, everything you strive for, everything you love other than Jesus Christ is passing away. It's passing away. So how wise is it of you to set your heart preeminently on any of it. It's temporal. It's passing away. Jesus Christ is the first and the last. Jesus tells us that He is the only true, fixed, solid, permanent, immovable reality. If that's true, and it is true, we need to see um, the world as Jesus sees it. Or we are deceived. You know, I meet a lot of folks and they say, well, I just can't agree with Jesus on that. Well, then you're deceived. Once you step away from agreeing with God in the Bible, it's simple. You're deceived. You're deceived. Any aspect of Scripture. Well, I don't like that part because it's messing up my, my social life or my leisure time on the computer. There's 10,000 other things I could say. Once you step away from God and what God has said, you are deceived and you're, you're, you're like one of those dogs. You're chasing a lie. We need to embrace the reality of Jesus Christ or we'll be running around in a circle for no good reason for the rest of our lives. And we've talked about this. Jesus looks into the heart. Did it with Nicodemus. He did it with the woman at the well. He sees their sin 
And He exposes that to them. I don't know if you've noticed that what a man or woman normally will not do is the very first thing Jesus requires of a man or a woman. And that is to own their sin. It's what I've been talking about with the baptismal candidates. You gotta, you gotta repent, man. You know. And what is repentance? We've been talking about it the last week or so. What is repentance? It means I feel sorry. No, not exactly. There is sorrow related to it, but biblical repentance is that I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind about my sin. I've changed my mind about the fact that I believe the universe revolves around me because now I know it revolves around Him. I've changed my mind about Jesus. He is the most important reality in my life. Period. Nobody even comes close to Him. Nobody. This is what we see on the pages of Scripture. Jesus will not let any man or woman rest in a false reality. He exposes the lie in each life. Nicodemus in his religion, the rich young ruler we talked about last week in his love of money, and again the Samaritan woman with her man fetish. Last week we saw verses 23 and 24 of John 4. Jesus said you must worship God in spirit and in truth. Obviously He's talking about, as I mentioned, uh, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We must be born again. We can't worship God lest we're born again. Lest we're born again of the Spirit. It's what He's talking about. And when we're born again of the Spirit, we can worship from that deepest place in our heart and soul and mind. And then, of course, He said you must worship in truth in accordance with the Bible. The 66 words of the, the Bible. You don't get to make up the way you want to worship God. Now, there are people all over the world making things up. Even people who call themselves Christians who no longer hold strictly to Scripture, but they just kind of make their own stuff up. You can't worship God like this. You don't get to make up the Jesus you like. You either love the biblical Jesus, or I just say go eat and drink and be merry, because there is no, there is no uh, pseudo-Jesus. I know that much of what is called the modern church has some caricature of Jesus, but we're called to love and worship and obey the biblical Jesus. So we must worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 25 here of John 4, The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And then what does Jesus say to her? Someone tell me from the text. What does He say in the next verse? What does He say? I'm Him! You have to ask yourself, why does He reveal Himself to this woman who is effectively a prostitute in, in this city? She is viewed as a prostitute. She's had five husbands and she's living with her boyfriend. Jesus hasn't said this to anybody else in the Gospel of John. He says it to her. Oh, He shouldn't even be talking to her. This is a Samaritan dog. You know, just in point, uh, a brief point in passing. Women, Jesus treated women differently. Okay? <laughs> he, 
in any Christian culture, women are more respected and treated better than in any other culture. Go do your reading. You say, I don't believe that, Jim. Go do the history. In any culture that's permeated with Christianity, the woman will be more respected, more revered. Jesus dealt with women in a way that no one like Him, no Jew like Him ever would or should. And He breaks down this prejudice, right? And He talks to this woman. He says, I am, I am Messiah, right? <laughs> this nobody from nowhere, she's shunned by her own community because of her moral standards. And we talked about it last week. Why does Jesus go through Samaria to begin with? Why? For her. He doesn't have to go through Samaria. There are other routes. He came for her. This is a divine appointment. Yeah. I think I said it last week. It kind of gives me goosebumps. Jesus tells her, I am. I am God. I am the Messiah. This is unbelievable. This is huge. This like, yeah, nobody from nowhere. And He tells her. He, he loves this woman. He reveals Himself. He reveals her sin to her. He says, I know about that. And then He reveals Himself to her. And as we've noted the last few weeks, let me just say it again so there's no confusion. Jesus cannot simply be a good man or a good teacher or a good prophet. He can't simply be any of those things because He claimed to be God. He claims it right here. I am the Messiah. So, we know that Islam is blaspheming Him and other religions when they demote Him to merely a prophet. He is God. He claimed it. So, you have to believe He's God or you have to believe He's a lunatic. There's nowhere in the middle. He could be a demon. I'll give you another option. And C.S. Lewis says there is no other option. He's God or He's a lunatic. Or maybe a demon. So don't ever put up with any of this goofy talk. That Oh, well, He's a good man. He was a good teacher. He was a moral... He was a prophet. He's God. He's God. And He says it to this woman. Verses 27 to 29. The disciples come back and they marvel that He's speaking with this woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, verse 29, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ is it? One quick brief point in passing. The disciples asked no questions. They were puzzled, but they asked no questions. I heard John MacArthur on this text, and he was saying he made he just made the point in passing that, you know, you can tell the difference between an immature believer and a mature believer. The immature believer has a thousand questions. It's not wrong to have questions, but the mature believer, he just trusts God. This is what God's doing. I'm going to trust God with what God's doing. If this is happening in my life, then I'm going to trust God with what God is doing. It doesn't mean it's wrong to ask a question. Don't hear me say that. But you know, when all you have is endless questions about God and what God is doing, do you have any real trust for Him? The disciples trusted Jesus. They didn't understand what He was doing, but they trusted Him.
here. So, the hallmark of true conversion, what is it? We see it right here in the text. What is the first thing she does? What is the first thing she does? Jesus says, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. What does she do? Someone tell me. She goes and tells. That's what you do, right? That's what, that's what you do. You go tell. If you're not going and telling, then we've got a big problem. Because God says go and tell. God says you are my witnesses. And did you notice that? Did you notice that her shame is now her testimony? All of these men know her past. They know her present immorality. And she goes to them. She has no shame anymore. She's been cleansed. She's met her Savior. And she goes and what was once her shame is now her testimony. This man has told me all that I have done. Is he the Christ? It's a hallmark of true conversion. You know, C.S. Lewis calls it the good, the good infection. <laughs> I've got the good infection. I've been born again. And you know, when, when you've got the good infection, you become infectious, right? And you tell people. You tell people around you. I've met the Christ. I've met the Savior. I know the Messiah. His name is Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? We are witnesses. We are disciples. We aren't just church members who come in here and talk about Jesus you know, amongst ourselves. We go out. What real Christians do is they go out the door and they talk about Jesus in the world. It's what she did. Bam. These men who would not give her the time of day would not look her in the eye. She's telling him about Jesus Christ. So, yeah, she runs into the city. <laughs> she runs. And you know, you can't help it. It's like once you're born again, you just, you, you know, it's, it's just bubbling up and you have this desire to share the gospel, to share what Jesus Christ has done in our hearts. You have the desire to share with your friends and family, you know, stop chasing that lie. That's just bub those are bubbles that will burst. Don't do that anymore. You're wasting your life. Come to Christ. Find the salvation of your soul. Find the satisfaction. Quench your thirst as we talked about last week. And when, you know, when it's real, it just kind of spills out. I love to to quote Sarah Groves, I quote her all the time. She's an American artist. She says, something's changed in me. It broke wide open and spilled out. This is Christianity. This is what we see in this woman's life. It spilled out. She runs to town and it, and it spills out in front of all of these men. We've talked about it the last several weeks. 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of my favorite texts. If a man is in Christ, he is a brand new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Listen to C.S. Lewis's comments on this. God became a man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. To become new men means losing what we now call ourselves. And Christ says, I will give you a new self. All of you who are born again understand what he's talking about. You're not simply a better man or woman dressed up with a little religion. You have a brand new self. Right? 
It's the gift of God to His people. I give you your true self. I give you who you were designed to be. That's what I give. He gives 10,000. Well, He gives an infinite amount of gifts. But one thing He gives is your true self to you. And that's when you begin to discover true joy. Right? That's when we, we understand what it's all about. <laughs> and we begin to experience the true joy that only He can offer. We have to share this good infection. Just a couple of brief examples from the Bible. Mark chapter 5. Jesus cast out an unclean spirit of a man and the text says, He went away and began to proclaim what great things Jesus had done for him. Mark chapter 7. Jesus healed a deaf mute. He even told the guy, don't tell anybody. You probably remember this account. And the text says he continued to proclaim it widely. John chapter 9, he healed a man born blind. And this man gave bold testimony to the Pharisees. And he was put out of the synagogue, which means he's ostracized from the whole Jewish community. He pays a heavy price in proclaiming Jesus. But he was blind and now he sees. I got to tell somebody about this. You know, you can't be a secret agent Christian. You just can't be one. This is an oxymoron. <laughs> it's an oxymoron. You know, a friend of mine used to say all the time, he said, you know, the most miserable person in the world is the person who pretends to be a Christian. Because they're always, they always have this, you know, they're pretending to be one, but they always have this guilt because they're not one. They won't talk about Jesus in the world. They're, they still have sin rampant in their lives. They won't deal with it. It's just all a game. It just, it's the, I think he's right. I think that is the most miserable person in the world. Someone who pretends to be a Christian. You guys remember Zacchaeus? He was a greedy, fraudulent, traitorous tax collector. Jesus came to him. And Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I will give back four times as much. So it's not just in our words. If the change has happened, it's in our deeds. And so we see it particularly here in Zacchaeus' life. This is what happens in the true believer's life. We're not believing or chasing the lies anymore. We're in relationship with our Creator. Verse 30, the men of that she has gone to, verse 30, they went out of the city and were coming to God. You get this sense from verse 30, 39, and 41 that most of the city is coming out to Him. It was interesting. I heard MacArthur say, this never happened in Galilee or Judah. It happened in Samaria. These people that the Jews hated. So they are coming out to Him. Verses 31 to 34. You heard the text read. The disciples show up and they say, eat something. And he says, and Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples were saying, well, did somebody bring Him something? In verse 34, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Of course, He's a human being. He eats like you and I, but Jesus is driving home a deeper point, which is 
My greatest satisfaction is to do my Father's will. Right? This is the deeper, more important point. And I would say that for us, yes, we must eat. We must eat the bread of life. Right? We must eat the bread of life. I heard John Piper talking about this text and he said, of course, this is God talking. <laughs> you know, why do we eat food? To be strengthened, right? And Jesus says, my strength comes from doing what God has called me to do. Yes, He's a human being. He's 100% man, 100% God. But He says, I am strengthened to do what God has given me to do by doing what God has given me to do. And some of you, you're, you're missing out on that source of strength because you're not doing what God has explicitly called you to do. And so you don't have this strength, you don't have this spiritual nourishment that simply comes from obedience. One thing I tell people all the time, they always ask me, you know, and it's fine, it's great, I, I love to answer questions, Jim. You know, uh, what's the most important discipline of your life? You know, is it Bible study? Is it prayer? Is it Bible reading? Is it, you know, what is it? To me, it's obedience. Because you know what happens in obedience? God shows up. He's always showing up, but He shows up uniquely in obedience, right? You have to tremble sometimes to obey God in the world. It's supposed to be this way. If you're not trembling sometimes in obeying God, you're probably not obeying God very much. Sometimes you have to risk everything. Jesus said it would be this way. But what happens when you have to take a great risk in obedience? Guess what happens? God comes. And you meet God in a brand new way. And you are profoundly changed. I just love this. I am strengthened to do what God has given me to do by doing what God has given me to do. And I want to say that's not only true for God incarnate, it's true for you if you're out in the world doing what God has called you to do. You will get strength from that. You get spiritual power from that. You'll be emboldened and encouraged. You'll never look back over your shoulder again. There are no backward glances for the mature Christian who's charging forward with Christ. Why look back? Man, there's nothing behind me that's worth looking at. I go on. I go on. I go on. And I am strengthened to do what God has given me to do by doing what God has given me to do. I just think it's powerful. I think it's beautiful. Jesus says, we, uh, you know, he, he talks more about this in his, in his ministry throughout the Gospels in Matthew 4. You remember when Satan came and tempted him to turn stones into bread? And Jesus said, shall, uh, shall man live by, not, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? You know, the Word of God is more important than the bread is the point there. You remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6? Jesus was challenging His hearers to have real faith in God. And uh, He vividly sets the priority in the true believer's life. Matthew 6, 31-34. What does He say? Do not 
worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. The Gentiles worry about all this stuff. Your Father knows you need this stuff. What does He say? Does anybody know what He says then? Seek first what? The kingdom of God. I'll just stop and ask, is that you? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? You say, Jim, that sounds pretty scary. Yeah, it is. It's always scary to radically follow Christ, but it's always good. If you want more of God in your life, What's my favorite discipline personally? It's obedience. Because God comes. Let me ask you, is that a divine earthquake in your life to seek first the kingdom of God? Would that be a divine earthquake in your life? Then so be it. Let it be a divine earthquake in your life. This week, you start seeking God's kingdom above anything else. This week. I just lovingly challenge you as your pastor. This week, you drive a stake in the ground. I'm going to seek the kingdom of God first. Some of you don't believe God is trustworthy enough or big enough to live like that. I give you personal testimony. He is. And I give you 66 books of the Bible. And I give you church history. He can be trusted. You can do everything He calls you to do with glad, reckless joy. Because He is God and nobody else is. God says, Hebrews 10.38, My righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So God is challenging always His people to get off the lie. He's turning creatures into sons. He's giving us our true selves. He restores wholeness and fullness and life and freedom. Isaiah 55.2, I think we touched on this last week. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Jesus is teaching His disciples and He's teaching us. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. John 6.27 That's what He's saying to us. Verse 35-38, to you heard the text read. I won't reread the whole text. But Jesus says, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look, the fields that are white for harvest. Uh, We understand from the text that it's December and there won't be a harvest for four more months, which is in April. So what is Jesus talking about here? What is this harvest He's talking about? The Samaritans are coming out to Him. And the white-robed Samaritans are coming out to Him. And He's looking at the harvest. It's coming. It's, co- it's going to be easy pickings for the disciples, right? There's going to be a mini you know, revival here. Here they come. And we know from the rest of the text, we'll get to in a minute, many believed. They don't do any labor. They just harvest, right? <laughs> Jesus says, uh, others, have, others have done the work. 
Others have sowed, but you will reap. So there's all this groundwork has been laid, right? The Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, and Jesus with this woman. And here comes the harvest. Here come the Samaritans out to Jesus. And I, I want to say this to you. You guys know this, I think. Um, this is why we're still on the planet. This is why we're still on the planet. To be witnesses, just like the Samaritan woman. Her shame became her testimony. And she's bringing many out to Jesus. And Jesus is talking about fruit and labor and reaping and, 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 and yeah, the, the fruit of the land. And you, you know what Jesus says to His people in John 15, 16. You did not choose Me, but I chose you that you should what? You should what? Sit in church. It's good to sit in church. I'm glad you're here. You should be here if you're a Christian. But what does He say? He says that you should what? Someone tell me. You have to know this text. What does it say in John 15? That you should bear fruit. You bear fruit out there when you share the Gospel. What is the Great Commission? We've talked about it recently. Matthew 28, Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You go to the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas. That's Matthew 25, Luke 19. And Jesus says... The, the, the imagery there is that God is giving you all of these capacities and all of these abilities and He's giving you the truth. And He says, go do business with this. Right? Go do business. That's what He says uh, literally there in the talents of the minas in Luke 19. Go do business. And I'm just going to ask you, are you doing business with what has God has given you? Are you doing business with the truth in the world? Are you doing God's business? It's an important question for us, beloved, but what does, what does the Master say to those who do business? What is that famous text? What will the Master say to those who do business? Who are good stewards? You know what He says. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. What a joy to share truth and watch people light up. Of course, in my job, I get to see it sometimes. But your job is not much different than mine. Yeah, I, vocationally, it's different. But you're out there sowing good seed and sometimes you get to see the Spirit of God light somebody up, right? It's an awesome thing. It's a breathtaking thing to watch it happen. To watch God light one of His people up. It's what I tell you all the time. Why are you here in Milan? I know some of you live here. But most of this congregation historically has always just been passing through. So why does God bring people from all over the world to Milan? You say, well, it's just my job or it's just uh, an education. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You are here on God's errand. If you don't understand you're here on God's errand, you've not understood really what your life is about as a professing Christian. You are here on God's errand to be a witness in Milan and to be part of a local church 
that you will be built up and challenged, right? You are here on God's errand. We talked about it last week. God's not interested in lukewarm church members. He's not interested in admirers or fans or spectators. He's only interested in disciples. And here are two pretty important questions for you and me. Are we disciples? And are we making disciples? It's the only reason He's left us on the planet. You say, Jim, God's left us here to worship. We could do it better there. You say, Jim, God's left us here to learn more about Him. We could do it better there. You say, Jim, God's left us here to fellowship with one another. We could do it better there. We are here to be witnesses. We are here to sow the seed. We are here to be like this immoral, repentant, Samaritan woman. Go and tell. That's why you're here. You thought it was about your career. Your career is not unimportant, but preeminently, if you're a Christian, you are here to tell. Everything else follows, falls under that. You are here to tell about Jesus Christ. You are here to tell. Karen hates it when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. So she'll rebuke me this week and I can bear up. It's not a big problem. She gives a soft rebuke. And then I'll kiss her and it'll all be over. Or buy her something nice. That usually works better. But um, anyway, she'll hate that I said all that. So I'll have to edit it. I couldn't stoop to be President of the United States. I could not stoop to do that job. Because I do this job. I preach the Gospel. I wouldn't be anybody else in the world. I hope you can say that. I can say it. I wouldn't be anybody else in the world. I get to do this. My point here too is that that is true for you. Whatever your, whatever your vocation is, whatever your orbit is, it really doesn't matter. God has put you there to be His witness. You say, I'm not getting a lot of joy in what I do. Part of the problem most likely is you are not being His witness in the place where He's put you to be His witness. He means for there to be a harvest there. And I, I understand about being in families and having unbelieving family members. I get it. We have to pick our spots. We have to be discerning. I understand. But our whole life is a witness. They see His loving Christ. They see it. They can feel it. Paul says they can smell it. Right? So, let me ask you, are you doing what God created and redeemed you to do? Are you obeying God? Are you busy with the Father's business? Are you doing His business? Are you building your life around the words that you want to hear above all others? Well done, good and faithful servant. Or are you still chasing lies and running around in a circle for no good reason? Jesus Christ is a divine earthquake. He blows His people's lives up and then He puts them back together again in the way He intends.
It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's what my friend said about the greyhounds who caught the rabbit. He said they would never chase again. I hope some of you will, will, will put down whatever it is you're chasing in the world. I hope you'll put it down right here, right now. Tonight, you'll put it down. You won't walk out this door carrying that anymore. You're going to stop chasing that lie, and you are going to pursue Christ with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. I pray that that would be your resolution Tonight, Spurgeon says the true Christian is spoiled for this world. I pray that you are. I pray that you are. We know what we're supposed to do here. We know what we're supposed to do here. This text tells us we're to go and witness. And look at verse 39 as we close. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in Him because of the word of the woman who gave testimony. Nobody's ever going to believe in your orbit if you don't give testimony. You're supposed to give testimony not only by the way you live, but at the right time by the way you speak. It's what she does. The whole city comes. You don't know what God's going to do when you speak. The truth, you don't know what He will do when you finally get around to speaking His name and His truth. You have no idea what He will do. He does this awesome thing here. Look at verse 41. And many more believe because of the Word. And then we get to the really maybe the, the, the crescendo of this whole account here in verse 42. Look at the last sentence. And they know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. It's why the whole account is in here. He is the Savior of the world. If you're a Christian tonight, you know that. You own that. And all I'm saying to you is, go out there and tell them. Go tell them. Go tell your family. Go tell your, your friends at the university. Go tell your coworkers. Go tell your neighbors. Go tell them. It's why you're here. I'm here to have a big career, have a perfect family. No, that's not why you're here. God may give you that, but you're here to be a witness. Just like this lowly Samaritan woman who God used to convert a whole city. Don't ever doubt what He will do through you when you finally get around to believing and trusting and speaking. I have no idea how long I've preached. I may have gone a little long. I apologize. I when you're old, you forget to look at your watch and you do many other silly things when you're old. But I'm done. Hey, go do your job. Go do your job. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this beautiful text. We thank You for this challenge. Thank You for reminding us who we are. Thank You for reminding us what our job is. Lord, we need Your faith. We need... We need uh, uh, courage and, and, and we need to be emboldened by the Spirit. We, we are sometimes um, inexplicably intimidated in the world. We ask for Your help, Father. We ask that we would just be looking at a sovereign God who can do miracles through anyone, including a lowly woman from Samaria. You could use even us, Lord. Help us to understand that You will expand Your kingdom through us if we'll simply sow the good seed 
It's a simple thing. Sow the good seed. Simply sow out the truth. Give out the truth. It's a simple thing. Help us, Father. Help us. Help us, we pray. Thank You for this encouragement. For You indeed are, Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world. It's in Your name that we pray. The mighty name, the matchless name, the wonderful name, the compelling name, the beautiful name, the name of Jesus. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and I will close with a short benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Have a great week. God bless you. Be sure and say goodbye to, uh, to Pam. She's back to paradise. Don't envy her too much. But you know, somebody's got to live in paradise. So, hey, please be sure. Come next Sunday if you're available. We're going, to have a we're going to have a couple of baptisms, some good testimonies, some good singing. Should be a lot of fun. We're going to have, God willing, a, a fellowship afterwards. So please try to come and join us next week. God bless. Have a good week.